millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Tom Watson, and this is my podcast, Persons of Interest. In my 20 years in the House of Commons, I was lucky enough to meet some truly fascinating people, but I didn't always manage to spend enough time with them to work out what makes them tick. So now I'm going to correct that by inviting them and you to join me for a longer chat. My guest this week is John Robb, punk rock's renaissance man. John is a wordsmith, a musician, a thinker of big ideas and an impresario. At 60, he's also fit as a butcher's dog and could be mistaken for 40 on a good day. I spoke to John about music, culture, the North, generally putting the world to rights. And I think you'll enjoy his interesting and lively, self-deprecating, humorous conversation. John Robb, living legend, I'm looking at you on Zoom. Sitting behind you are like very chaotic looking bookshelves. You've got things hanging on the wall. What's sitting behind you? Mainly books right behind me. I've actually been pruning them all down in the lockdown because I've been getting rid of all my records and vinyl because I was listening to everything on Spotify, even though boo, his Spotify don't pay the musicians. But for a listener, it's amazing because you have almost the whole world of music in your phone. If only they paid people properly, it would be the most genius thing ever. So how many albums have you got? Probably got about 100 now, but there probably was about 2,000. Was it all genres or was it mainly punk you'd got? Punk's a door opener, but music was always there. I like. I mean, I was into music before punk. I was into glam, but not in a super cool way. I'm not one of those people goes on about seeing Bowie do Starman on top of the pops in 1972 and that changed my life. I mean, growing up in Blackpool, we had no idea which ones were cool and which ones weren't, you know. <laughs> I still like Mud's singles and Sweet singles as much as Bowie and T-Rex, you know. I know, to me, actually, the real genius of the 70s, of the glam rock period, is probably Chin Chapman, who wrote all those wonderful singles, you know, for the Sweet and Mud and all those kind of bands. But you'll probably don't remember this, Battlefield. No, I do remember. I remember Top of the Pops on a Thursday night and the chart show on a Sunday night. Being in the living room of Stephen Salt with a cricket bat, pretending to play the guitar to Tiger Feet. We used to listen to it all the time. And then my mum and dad, they were very young, so they used to have good parties. So New Year's Eve, we'd always have all those bands. Glam on. rock party. It was glam rock party, so I remember it all. I mean, David Bowie was far too trendy for me in the 70s. Well, see, I think because I was growing up in Blackpool, and it was a different kind of music scene. I mean, all the hip kids were into Northern Soul. We weren't hip kids, so we liked bits of Northern Soul, but it wasn't our dominant culture. So in other cities where the hip kids would have liked Bowie, that didn't really happen where I was. So he was just for all the glam rock kids. You could tell there was something more about him. Growing up, the one who looked the coolest was Mark Boland. He was the one who did genuinely look androgynous and like a great rock and roll star. Also, growing up at school, if you were a boy, you couldn't say you like Mark Boland because it was 
the unreconstructed 70s, you know, so you could get beaten up for like in Mark Bowler and Isaac School. And it's only by the time I got into the fifth form or the sixth form, then people started to appreciate him like he was actually the Bob Dylan of that period, you know. What was the first vinyl you bought yourself? Oh, uh, God, I'm trying to remember now. It's going to be a Slade record. can't remember the exact chronology of it, but it could be stuff like the Wombles. Which... But that Wombles <laughs> album, you know, that was a great album, right? It was well written. I mean, the music, I mean, all right, it's the Wombles, but I mean, the songs on it were really well written, I thought. Well, it's Mike Battle. I mean, I know he's a bit of a Tory, isn't he? But... Well, we can forgive him for that. <laughs> but... <laughs> but he was a great songwriter and a great music arranger as well. That's the funny thing. I'll tell you a record I totally adored in that period, and I adore it to this day, is Rock On by David Essex. Yeah which is the most weirdest, quirkiest record. And I remember when it came out. That's brilliant. Yes, yeah, it's amazing. It's like a dark dub record. It's 10 years ahead of his time. And he wrote that as well, didn't he? But it's kind of timeless. Though. You know, a generation now could listen to that and just think this is just completely unique. Total work of genius. I mean, he took the pop route and he was a great pop star. And I wasn't really bothered about the records after that. I like Lamplight and a couple of tracks off the first album. Then he did what he had to do because he had to face for a pop star. But I've often wondered, is there a whole album of rock-ons just in his head? But he was still touring some years ago, was it? I mean, he's got a massive fan base, David Essex, that he took through the 80s, 90s and noughties. I think because of his acting career and all the musicals and the whole thing. I mean, well, he's a proper superstar, really, but I totally love that record and it was a weird one-off anomaly. There was a period of that one that was like after 73, like the peak of glam, there's always, like, false alarms. I mean, there was Steve Harley, wasn't there, when he did Judy Teen? For about two weeks, it was the coolest record ever at school. But then there was Alvin Stardust, wasn't there, with Mike Kukachu, which everybody thought he was cool for about two weeks. I thought he was cool for about 20 years. I missed the news. <laughs> but um, my first single that I bought was I Love You, Love by Gary Glitter, but I better not mention the story behind any of that. Yeah, well, it gets <laughs> us into a very complex argument there, the art or the artist, and it always comes back to Gary Glitter. But I just actually did a, a record with John Russell from the Glitter Bands. We made a record together, an album. And John's the only member of the Glitter Band who actually plays on the records, the Gary Glitter records. Is that right? Yeah. Well, it's Mike Leander does all the instruments, the producer. I didn't know that. Because Mike Leander could do the drums, he could do the bass, but John Russell could play all the brass parts. And he's still to this day a great brass player and a great arranger. I feel kind of sorry for him because I met him loads over the years. You could be at a festival and people go, you shouldn't be talking to him and go... It's nothing to do with him, is it? It's like if your boss at work turned out to be a wrong one, wouldn't mean that you were. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's very true. That's been my excuse in politics for many years. Anyway, yeah, yeah. anyway tell me about lockdown, John. Right? How has lockdown affected you? It kind of uh, reduces your world into like a very small room, doesn't it? So normally I'll be travelling around quite a lot. So before all this, I've been in London once, twice a week on tour moving about quite a lot and suddenly you're in this little room that's about 10 by 7 feet full of stuff of your whole life. It's like (laughs) retreating inside your own brain in a way. Everything gets done in here, whether it's writing songs, whether it's doing the website, writing books... It's just kind of moving around the room from the settee to the chair to the floor to the settee. <laughs> How far away from the fridge? Are you eating differently or are you still being pretty disciplined on your nutrition? Oh, yeah, just eating the same, yeah. There's no point in like letting it all go. Is there, and also, I actually prefer the healthier stuff. I think it actually tastes better. People always think it's a chore, don't they? They think if you're a vegan, it must be like eating bits of cardboard. But it's not at all. I think people now, especially in the last four or five years, it's become so normalised that it doesn't even seem unusual anymore. I mean, for years, you'd have to explain what it was all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think real food that's vegan produced is great. You get some sort of fake... Well, it's not quite fake vegan food, but it's like that ultra-processed vegan stuff you can get. It's not as good as making wholesome meals with proper vegetables. I don't see the point of it, really. I don't see the point of making burgers that are vegan, but I understand it's a gateway. It's the gateway drug, isn't it? It's like if you're 12 years old, you get into Green Day... 
and a year later you've discovered the buzzcocks, you know, and that's it's the same kind of process. <laughs> exactly. But in the lockdown period, I mean, on this topic, kind of ties all these little strands together. I just did a book with Dale Vince, you know, the guy who runs Ecotricity. Yeah. And I did a book about his life and also the ideas that we have about green populism. And Dale's brilliant at this. He owns a football club, Forest Green Rovers, so he's already got a populist thing going on there. And they're top of their division now. When he took it over, he turned to green football club, vegan football clubs. You have to eat burgers that are vegan and the fans are up in arms. But his idea is to make them taste better than normal burgers and he's managed to win them over. So that's an example of the gateway drug in a sense. It's getting these terrific ideas and making them mainstream because otherwise no one's going to win this battle, are they? You know, the world's going to collapse, everything's going to be a complete mess. So you have to take this stuff to the people. communicating the need for change it's very hard isn't it and some people say you have to do it very conservatively and take people on a journey others say you need to take a leap and drag as many people with you and make it mainstream the idea that i'm interviewing a vegan punk rocker every stereotype of a punk rocker i mean all the punk rockers in my day drank cider (laughs) and ate really unhealthily but you're not like that are you i mean you're 60 you're fit as a butcher's dog i've seen you live i mean you're very physical on the front of your band have you always been like that no i mean obviously you have like your frank's wild years don't you as tom waits (laughs) (laughs) album i mean for a period but i think that idea of punk the archetype of punk is because those people were 20 25 then you know and you could do that you could stay up for four days and it wouldn't affect you at all, would it? But as you get older, your body changes. And also because the music and the culture is a very physical music and it's when you go watch a band who plays really physical music in a not very physical way, it's quite weird, isn't it? It's a lot of those old <laughs> punk bands, they look knackered after about two songs, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> they are, yeah, that's very true. But there was no manifesto. It doesn't have to be one thing or the other. I mean, the idea, when people say, can you define punk? I say, no, I can't really. I've got my own personal idea what it is. But everybody's idea of it is completely different. And the original punk, the 76, 75 punk, is totally different from those guys in shopping centres drinking cider 10 years later. But neither are wrong and neither of them are right, are they? It's just... Yeah, yeah, I get that. And I am playing to the stereotype. I do know there's nuance in it. Where I grew up in Kidderminster, punk rock... We kind of inherited it, really. You know, we weren't cutting edge. It was everyone copying what was going on in London. It was, but then it got redefined. And I've often thought the so-called provincial, and I hate that word, it's like we're the last provinces of the empire or something. But the people outside London, we're the people that created post-punk because we tried to do punk. We didn't really know what we're doing and we made it our own version. So all that great wave of bands that came 78, 79, 80, are people kind of misinterpreting what punk was and putting their own vision in it. So they, in a way, the people getting it wrong in Kidderminster, the people actually created the good stuff next. I mean, I just finished writing a book about goth culture. God, it's enormous. It's about 250,000 words. <laughs> but nearly all the bands and all the key drivers of that come out of really weird little towns like Bauhaus come out of Northampton and Throbbing Gristle aren't technically a goth band, but their influence is in there, come out of Hull, you know. And these little outposts of culture is where the interesting stuff happens. And I think one of the weirdest things when I moved from Blackpool to Manchester was... We thought it was just going to be like this amazing scene because we used to go to gigs, but we came here. There wasn't actually much going on. And everyone was so hamstrung by trying to be cool because, you know, you have to be a cool city kid. Whereas in a town like Blackpool, you don't really have to be cool. There's no measure of cool. No one knows what it is. So you just become yourself. And also because you're left alone for years, you just get time and space to ferment 
your own culture. Just before I stood down as an MP, Yvette Cooper was pushing this, that instead of having a city of culture, we should also have a town of culture mm. each year. Because actually, you're right about these subcultures. I mean, the music scene in Kitty when I was growing up, I mean, you had Tony DeVitt, the DJ, doing his thing in the Market Tavern, on, uh, no, in the Farmer's Boy on Station Hill. You'd have Ned's Atomic Dustbin or, you know, Pop Will Eat Itself and all of that coming over to the Market Tavern. There's still bands going for it. There's a band called Full Pelt that I follow in Kidderminster. Mm. You know, it doesn't register anywhere else other than your own area, does it? But it could be undiscovered genius, can't it? It's just there. and it's Because it doesn't really have to be successful to prove that it's only good. It's like the one-hand clapping thing, isn't it? It's like if you shout in space, no-one can hear you. I like those, those kind of ideas. If you're in Kidderminster and shout, no-one's going to hear you. Well, I remember touring through Kidderminster several times. Uh, Sawyer's was the venue at the time. And it's a really good gig. Was that, that with Goldblade or the Membranes or both? That would be Goldblade, yeah. Yeah. That, um, yeah. Or am I mixing up with Kettering? I always mix the two up because both big and K. You've mentioned Kettering, Kidderminster and Forest Green, all of which had non-league teams that I've seen play. So uh, you're in the <laughs> yeah, right sort yeah. of cultural territory. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing about those towns. They've all got Division 4 or what you really technically, Division 5 football clubs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and all the people into music there all support small football teams. That's the other thing, isn't it, like... You very rarely meet people off that music scene who are massive fans of the uh, super rich clubs. They're, they're all doggly into underground music and, in a sense, underground football, aren't they? <laughs> underground football, I love it, I love it. I mean, the Harriers, though, I mean, they did get to Division 3, but you're right, I know what you mean. It, it's part of people's identity, isn't it? And if they do not want to go and live in a city and hang around with all the cool kids, they build their own life in towns. And it's interesting now in the pandemic, isn't it, because people leave in the cities, aren't they? I saw London have lost 700,000 people. I don't know if that's people going to their second homes or people... <laughs> actually, because of the internet, because people are thinking, I don't really want to commute anymore, I've restructured my life. Not everybody obviously can do this, but people who can work from home I think I'm just going to work from home now. And all the prices of all the little towns are going up, so will they be poisoned by city culture? You just never know, do you? It says he living right in the middle of Manchester. Are you actually in the centre of Manchester? Whereabouts are you? I'm in mean, Hume, which uh, for years was like the rundown, sort of mostly squatted area where all the heads lived. Yeah. Next to the city centre, but the city centre of Manchester is so expanded, we've been invaded and it goes on about another half a mile past where I live. So Yeah, I know Moss Side and Hume. In fact, I used to go up there a bit in the late 80s, early 90s. But, you know, you had those big sort of estates that the city council knocked down. There was the best chippy I've ever been to. It was run by a Chinese family. I mean, this is like my old self, right? But I used to eat a lot of fish and chips, <laughs> yeah. and that was one of the best ever. But there you go. I know the place. And have you always been in Hume, John, since you left Blackpool, or have you moved around? No, first went to Withington. Well, I was at college in Stafford at Stafford Poly for a year. Yeah. Although, when I say I was at Stafford Poly, I wasn't really at the Poly very much. <laughs> <laughs> this is the weirdest thing about Dale Vince, because when I went to meet him... We talk about, you know, he was from Great Yarmouth. Then he said, uh, oh, I moved up to this polytechnic for a year in the Midlands and it was a terrible place. And I go, where was it? He goes, oh, you wouldn't be interested. I go, no, where was it, Dale? He goes, it was Stafford Poly. Uh, yeah, I go, yeah. I said, no way. What year were you there? And he's there the same year that I was. And we didn't know each other. I was thinking... Both present, but not there. Well, I think he must have been even less than I was. I mean, I stood out a bit at Stafford Poly. Everyone else had, like, flare jeans on and I was just... I was in black and no one wore black clothes in them days. This is, like, 1980, you know, in a place like Stafford, you would stand out. <laughs> but we knew all the same pubs. Yeah. This is really odd how our past didn't cross yeah. all those years ago. But you've written this book with it, because it's billed as a manifesto, isn't 
isn't it? I mean, there's a sort of political element to this. Did he seek you out to write it with him or how did that come about? I went to interview him for my website because he was talking about doing that tour, Massive Attack, like a green eco tour. Try and do a zero carbon tour as much as you possibly can. It's not quite possible. Yeah. But then we were talking, he said, oh, I'm doing a book. Do you want to come in and... I did a long interview and I wrote the book and he rewrote it in his voice, which I prefer because I'm not really into being a ghostwriter that much, but I liked what he was trying to do with it and it was called Manifesto at that point. Yeah. And the first half of the book's about his life and the second half is the manifesto for a post-pandemic future. You know, it's all the things that need to be done. But what's great about him, he's practical. So people will say to Greta Thunberg, if you're so clever, Greta Thunberg, why don't you invent a plane that yeah. doesn't pollute? And of course, she's 18 and she's yeah, not yeah, really yeah. inventing planes. But Dale will go, well, I could do that. He's a fascinating character, there's no doubt about it. His latest project is making diamonds from air. So he's got these massive tubes, sucks the air in, compresses the carbon, makes diamonds, cleans the air and pumps it back out the other side. So yeah. Yeah, every time you go there, it's stuff like it's really sci-fi, but they're actually doing it. <laughs> it's fantastic. And on the energy market, he's made a real difference, hasn't he? Oh, you know, yeah. Well, people yeah. really choose him. Consumer power is what he's really hard. I think it's just on the cusp of the whole thing. I think, you know, in 10 years' time, or even quicker, where that's all going to go. And with the electric cars as well, where that's all going to go, it's, it's practical. And that's because he was a traveller for 10 years, living in a bus. He's at the Battle of Beanfields. He got beaten up by the cops. Yeah, I did know. And he ends up being an OBE <laughs> 15 years later. It's quite funny, isn't it's it? It's an amazing story. <laughs> I guess I'm in the stage of life where I'm trying to get off the grid and live in a camper van full time rather than, uh, <laughs> you know, go straight, as they say. Tell me about your writing, John, right? Because you describe yourself as journalist, author, musician, but you've actually written a lot of books, haven't you? I mean, did you do journalism and writing to supplement your musical life or did it just come naturally to you? That sounds like it was really organised. It was never like that because punk was so empowering because the glam thing, of course, I've talked about before and it was amazing, but it seemed like it was stuff made by people from outer space or from Mars. You know, I mean, David Bowie or even Arvon Stardust for us growing from Blackpool could have come from Mars. They seemed so alien not the sort of thing that we could ever do. We had no idea that Blackpool actually had a music scene in the 60s. People like Lemmy had lived in Blackpool, you know, and been in bands. Had he really? I didn't know that. Yeah, he was in a band in the 60s called Rocking Vickers before he moved down to London. And when he came back to Blackpool a year later, he was Jimi Hendrix's roadie and LSD carrier. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was his role, this specific role. I can see that. And holding the amp up. So when Jimmy was doing his thing on the amp, he had to stand behind it holding it up. <laughs> he told me he made him give up guitar. He said, once you've seen Jimi Hendrix play guitar, there's just no point in playing guitar anymore. <laughs> I could see that. Could so see we that. didn't know all that culture was there, but punk came along and... There was that message that we got from it. it was anybody could do it. It was empowering. You can do it, you know. So whether you could play an instrument or not, it didn't matter. Yeah. So we put the band together and we played our first gig and we didn't know any chords or scales. We'd never plugged in an amp before. We just plugged in and it sounds so loud. It was mental. And we just played for about 20 minutes and that's how we started, really. I mean, classic post-punk, really. But it's the same with writing as well because the fanzine culture, because somebody brought to school the Buzzcock Spiral Scratch EP. So we thought, God, you can actually make your own record. That was just utterly revolutionary. We thought that's actually something that somebody could actually make. Then somebody brought the fanzine Sniffing Glue to school, and that's the same thing. It was so homemade looking. We thought, we can actually make this. We just had to find somebody. We never heard of a photocopier, so we had to ask around how you could make more than one of them. And then we found out, and that's how it started. So we didn't go to college to learn. I mean, nowadays people do courses on music journalism, 
But then we just wrote, you know, we just got an old typewriter and just wrote stuff and it just carried on from there. Did you have a regular fanzine at the time or did you just do your own little propaganda stuff? It was in a regular fanzine, so it would come out when we finished it. So and what was that called? Rocks, R-O-X. So it was a pun on Blackpool Rocks, yeah. but also on Xerox. Xerox for a generation below us is a photocopier. And actually for the generation below them, it's a thing that you used to put bits of paper on and it would do a paper copy of it, but you don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. As I was trying to explain to my mum the other day, actually, Xerox, rocks, Xerox, yeah. And Xerox is still one of my favourite punk words because it really does escapulate to me the spirit of punk, this idea that you could create information for lots of people, which now, of course, on the internet, people do without even thinking. But then it just seemed amazing. You could make 50 of these, sell them, and you could get the word out. You didn't have to go and write for The Guardian or The Enemy or whatever. You can make your own culture and your own media, which was basically what I spent my whole life doing. What was the first writing project you did that you got paid for? For Zigzag, a magazine called Zigzag, which was an underground magazine which had national distribution. It was started in the hippie days and it came back in the post-punk period. So I got on there and I started writing and thought, wow, you get paid, this is amazing. And then from there I went on to Sounds. In 1986 I started writing for Sounds, which is brilliant. It was the best music paper to write for. Because they believed in the freelancers. Because they said, well, you're going out all the time, so you must know what's going on. So it wasn't like the enemy where you had to go and justify what you wrote about if it was going to be popular of, or have a good <laughs> midweek chart position. So you could walk in and say, I want to write about this new band called Nirvana. Uh, there we go. Well, everyone's saying, you know, people in the music scene, before this first single came out, yeah. people said, but this is the worst thing Sub Pop had done. No one gets this. I go, no, listen to his voice. It's amazing. And that's how I ended doing the first ever interview in Nirvana. Not because I thought they were going to be massive. I was just captivated by the way he sang on that record. Is that right? What year was that? I should know this, but... Uh, 88, I think. Yeah. I mean, it happened so quick, didn't it? I mean, in 89, we went to New York to interview them. And we stayed with them in New York. Because Sounds never got hotels, we had to stay with the band in somebody's flat. There's two bands in this flat... Uh, me and the photographer. And the photographer got run over by a bus and broke his leg. So he had to lie there with a broken leg because you can't stay in a hospital in New York with no insurance. Yeah. So I never was running out getting sandwiches. And we saw Nirvana play in Maxwell's in Hoboken to about 20 people, you know, just because we weren't five stars, so we hung out with the bands, you know. And actually, in the end of the day, we got far better experience of it all. I had a really good conversation with Horace Panther, who was saying before the specials broke through, they supported The Clash. And there was a night in Glasgow where they basically had to get to the foyer of the Clash's Hotel to see whether they'd get a room for the night. But Paul Simonon had been arrested and Strummer had been arrested. So there was chaos. And so they had to sleep in the back of the van. <laughs> but they said it was a coming of age thing. It was a like rock and roll. Yeah, thing. we've all, I mean, every musician's done that a few times. But then you've gone on, though. I mean, with your books, you've done sort of really detailed, particular music genre culture. But you've also done the history of the Stone Roses. I mean, how did all that come about? I mean, that's Stone Roses, but I've got that one. I've got a few of your books, actually. But what made you do the Stone Roses? Well, I was actually asked to do it. I mean, I had the story anyway, because when I first moved to Manchester, we rehearsed next door to them before they'd even done a gig. So their original bass player is one of the first people I knew in Manchester from two or three years before that, because he worked in a cool record shop in town, sold magazines, so he'd take my fanzine. So that'd be Pete Garner. To this day, he's a good mate of mine. So they'd be rehearsing next door. We were a bigger band. Well, I had to go and borrow a guitar string off them. That's how I got to know them. So for them, it was like this big underground band who's come to borrow a string off. To us, they were like a local band. I mean, they sounded good. They were doing all the early stuff like So Young and Tell Me. 
they're really tight and they're really good people. So we got on with them and they lived near us at the time. So we'd seen them walk around the streets quite a lot. And I didn't do the first piece on them. That was Gary Johnson at Sounds. Their first gig was in London and they got on the front cover of Sounds. I mean, you'd think that's going to happen now. <laughs> yeah, so I started interviewing them. Marianne Hobbs was going to do the book, but she said there's no point in her doing it because I knew the story. I didn't realise what I was getting myself into because doing a book... It's not an overnight job, is it? No, it's a big job. <laughs> it's much harder than it looks right in a book. You've got legals yeah. and editors and, you know, publish dates and promotions. It's a whole load of misery, isn't it? Paranoia of getting anything wrong. I mean, over 350 pages, what happens is somebody will read the book and go, on page 148, right, you said on that song in the studio he played a gold guitar, no, it's a white one. You know, that, that'll go into Amazon forever. My first book was on the phone hacking scandal, which you could imagine if I'd got any fact wrong in that book. Yeah, and the stakes are higher. I'd have been murdered by very powerful corporations. So I, I remember being locked in a room with lawyers for two days who raised 500 queries on the draft of the book and literally I had to evidence every query. It was the most depressing, frightening thing I've ever done. It was more stressful writing the book about phone hacking than investigating phone hacking. Anyway, that's a different story. Even if you get every single thing in there right, they still have it in view forever, don't it they? It has been said, mate. It has been said that I get a hard time. But, I mean, you know, the problem is when you're an MP, you just have to suck it up. That's the thing. You've literally got no defence. You just have to take it. It is the most thankless job in the world, I think. I, mean, I know some people totally abuse the system and there's a lot of lightweights and there's a lot of people just doing it for all the wrong reasons. There's a lot of people actually do it for altruistic reasons as well. This is the interesting thing about you, John, because most people, you know, in the music world either wouldn't have the time or the inclination to realise that public policy is important for the music sector. But you've always engaged with politicians, haven't you? Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of that started with the American visa campaign because we try to get the visa situation in America is a nightmare, which now is for the EU. But it's hard to do it on my own, so I've got to touch a few people. Initially, all the music organisations were not interested at all. So when we finally got the meeting with Ed Vasey, who was the um, culture secretary at the time, they all suddenly turned up because it was a glamorous day out. You know, it, <laughs> it wasn't all the grindy stuff you have to do and things. I mean, ultimately, the campaign was doomed. It's actually more expensive getting to America now. They've tightened it up even more. And now we have to deal with the EU and post-Brexit and things. Yeah. But I think you have to talk to people, and you also have to talk to people that you don't particularly agree with to make things happen, I think. There are issues that don't really have a left or right slant on them. They just have to be sorted out, don't they? There's many. And in fact, the misunderstanding about Parliament is there's a lot of agreement. You know, a lot of the... When bills are being scrutinised or amended in committee, you get 20 MPs in a room and they'll agree on 80% of the stuff. Mm. And they'll genuinely improve a bill and make things better. But that never makes the news. So you only see the set-piece disagreements. Yeah, it's the tabloidization of culture and politics. And now that's been accelerated by the internet. So everything has to be black or white. There's no in-between. Nobody ever goes on Twitter or Question Time and goes, do you know what, I'm not sure. <laughs> it's funny because I ventured a really lightly held opinion on Meghan Markle's debacle. It created this massive debate about, you're wrong on this one, Tom, you're right on this one. And I just thought, well, I'm kind of right and wrong. You know, I haven't really got a strong view either way. But you can't not have strong views on social media and survive, can you? That's the problem. I always think with social media and probably a lot of modern politics and culture is that everyone shouts and nobody actually listens. But also the only people you hear shouting are the loudest people. So... Most people who voted for Brexit aren't Nigel Farage. They're a bit 
worried about their lives. You know, they're not... What did they say in France? They came up with the wrong answer to the right question. You know, my life is shit, my town is falling apart, <laughs> therefore I'll vote Brexit to make it better. No, 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 wrong answer. <laughs> but your question that you had was a genuine question, you know, but they were manipulated and used, weren't they? But it doesn't make them racist, doesn't make them stupid, it just makes them misguided. So now, of course, they realise it definitely was the wrong answer and that. But that's the trouble now, yeah. hopefully after Trump... That phase of the world is over, but you kind of know at our age, you see these cycles, don't you? You know, it's not the end of the populace. It's not the end of Twitter rhetoric, is it? I did feel very emotional when I started following Joe Biden on Twitter. And his more positive and optimistic tweets just gave me a sense of quite, you know, because you'd be so brutalised by Trump's public utterance. It was actually amazing that politics had got quite boring in America. Again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, it was such a relief. I mean, those pictures of him with his Alsatian dogs in the West Wing, I just think, OK, that'll do me. Just give me a bit of hope. That summed up how much more humanity he has, because apparently Trump hates pets. He doesn't like animals at all. Is that right? I didn't know Which that. is a very small facet. Of course, not everyone has to like animals or pets, but it just tells you an awful lot about him, doesn't it? It certainly does. Imagine if you had a dog and somebody was spoiling the dog how upset he'd be. He'd have a tantrum. Yeah, because most presidents have had animals. And Harry Truman famously said, if you want a friend in politics, get a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Well, probably said that about Blondie as well, didn't he? (laughs) (laughs) Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This series two of persons of interest, right? The reason I do these interviews is, in politics, I met really interesting people but didn't have a lot of time to get to know them. And I've got to know you at music events and seeing you perform and reading your stuff. But I don't know a lot about you. Right. I mean, we're doing lockdown. You know, do you go running? Do you train? Do you meditate? Tell me how you keep your sense of perspective. Well, I go running every day for half an hour and in my little room here. I've got... So you're holding up a weightlifting curl bar there. <laughs> you do weightlifting in that little room yeah, too? Yeah, but I haven't got like a full set. I've got like some 20Ks and some 5Ks. So I've got enough to do a scratch there, but then I got really into this New York-style street training. So it's called calisthenics. Calisthenics. Yeah. yeah. You, ah, you do that. Body weight. Oh, you do using your own weight. Yeah, well, maybe the rucksack to do press-ups with the 20K in the back of it. 
and doing really grindingly slowly. So you've got to do about seven before you give in and then do 100 altogether. So you just do them up to 100. So you do a sequence throughout the day where you'll bang seven out and then come back 20 minutes later or you'll just do 100. No, no, you do more in an hour session, yeah. Yeah, so do you do that every day? Right, you'll run every day. Yeah, I've run six days a week and one day cycling because my legs start to get really sore after about six days. <laughs> I did 5K a day every day in November or most days in November. And then I literally didn't do a single run between just before Christmas and yesterday. <laughs> and yesterday I did my first 5K because <laughs> lockdown has been, I found it really hard. So what I find interesting about you is you've not found it difficult. How often did you used to go to the gym? When the gym's open, how often do you go? It's about four days a week, the days in between I go running. So. And would you lift in the gym? That's yeah. when you do your lifted. So you lift every time you go to the gym, yeah. Yeah, it's two body parts a day. So you don't do your whole body because it'd be too much. Yeah. So you do your legs and back one day, you know, chest, you know, biceps, triceps, you know, so you'd split it up not to burn your body out because your body gets really burned out from it. So when I started lifting again at the age of 52, I mean, I'd be like totally zeroed out. I'd staggering around feeling faint and sick. But an hour or two after, I'd feel euphoric. You know, I got an endorphin high. My brain was clear. I could think great thoughts. Mm. Do you still find, is it the cognitive gains that you get out of it that keep you going? This is the weird thing. It's a spiritual and mental thing. It actually probably has the edge over the physical. All the caffeine and the physical is everything feels a bit sore, isn't it? Yeah. But the clarity you get from it is pretty amazing. And also, I think we're made to do it. You know, our bodies aren't made to sit in chairs. The biggest killer is the armchair. It's worse for you than smoking. And we do have very sedentary lifestyles. You talked about a spiritual bit of exercise. Do you have faith? No, I'm more on the science side of things. I mean, I'm fascinated by faith and spirituality and I'm fascinated by churches and temples and mosques and the serenity and the beauty of them when you go inside them. And wherever I go in the world, I always go to these places. If I go to Istanbul, I just walk into the mosques and they're great because the people really look after you as well. They're communal places and they're really excited you've come to visit their mosque, you know, and it's like this kind of really weird-looking blokes just wandered in <laughs> and give you a cup of tea and... Because they're actually like what churches used to be like. They were communal hubs where, you know, if the old people were on their own, they would take down to the church. It's about 1,500 years ago because we're not very good at communal stuff in this country. But that's what they were built for in the first place. They were like youth centres, old people spaces, yeah. and the mosques still retain that. What does it for me is that scientists are never certain about certainty and religious people are completely certain about fables. And in a way, that it's quite cute that, you know, but... I know a lot of scientists because I've done TEDx talks and I've got to know loads of them, like the people who run the CERN project. In fact, um, the guy who ran the Higgs boson particle thing is a friend of mine. So we have some great conversations. And he told me about the universe, and this will tie it all together, but he said, like, the universe, it doesn't have an end. It goes on forever. And it's a weird concept for us because we live in rooms. So I look around your room, it's got roof, walls, you know. It's, <laughs> but the universe isn't like that. It goes on forever, and that's such an unhuman concept. But there's also multiverses and they're all piled on top of each other. So in your room there, they can't prove this, but they think this is what it is. There's a billion multi-universes, even in your room, all overlapping with each other. You could actually exist in all those other multiverses doing different things at the same time. And as you listen to this, you go, wow, this is amazing. This is such a, a head spin, the whole idea of it. Then he said the weirdest thing about the universe, though, it looks like chaos, but it's actually in a mathematical order. It actually does things to order... 
And he said if he was a spiritual person, it would be quite easy to prove there was a God making it all happen. But he says, as a scientist, I'm not having that. But he did say he'd been there 35 years, and he said the more they find out about the universe, the less they know, which is one of my favourite <laughs> sayings. Oh, it's so clever, that. There's a brilliant but very hard-to-read book by Ray Kurzweil called The Age of Spiritual Machines, and he essentially says the universe is an information entity and that there's this notion of the singularity and that when human biology fuses with technology such that we end up processing information more deeply and quickly, basically our brains becoming supercomputers, then it will lead to a moment where the superintelligence of the connected world will radiate around the universe and we reach the singularity. And you can kind of see where that technological advance has taken us. You know, I looked at the UAE, put a satellite around Mars, the Americans landed a thing on Mars this week. The thing that blew my mind, though, he says that technological advance is on an exponential curve rather than incremental. And it only looks like we've been incrementally improving our lives because we've been at the base of the curve. But we're now at the bendy bit that starts to go up. And so the world is going to change beyond our imagination in the next few years, which really means that we need to be running more and meditating more and doing more yoga because we're just not going to be in control of events. We've just got to find a way of dealing with events. We're never going to get out of the armchair. But no matter how technical we get, we're still chimps with an extra chromosome, really, aren't we? So it's we can't obliterate what we are, you know. It's kind of like dichotomy in humans, isn't it? You know, chimps can do really beautiful things, but they can also be really vicious and nasty, aren't they? So we can have all that tech stuck on top but we're still like naked apes, aren't we? But that's why I think why you do exercise and why you do yoga and why you do meditation, the instinctive reaction to events, being triggered. Like Buddhism, to me, is the ancient art of controlling your own cellular biology, right? So instead of reacting to events, Mm. you just find a nanosecond where you stop the impulse to be irritated. And that's controlling the monkey mind, isn't it? (laughs) And you can sometimes momentarily reach that point which must be what people with faith know as nirvana or almost being in heaven mm. i didn't intend us to have this conversation when we came on the call john <laughs> no but this is getting interesting i mean uh, but the thing about buddhism is based on a culture that's like that anyway is that thing where it's not reactive is it whereas in the west we're much more reactive and we're much more aggressive and they're much more patient so you can see how those yeah. ideas feed into their philosophies in the latter years of politics for me it was really brutal i really did try and understand the motivations of people who were doing some really horrible things towards me personally or within the environment i was in and dennis skinner once said to me never question the motive of the person with whom you disagree right let's start off with the position that they're trying to do good but you just disagree with how you get to them doing good of course dennis would always then rip the heads off tory MPs with whom he disagreed <laughs> but it's not a bad starting point in life that is it you know if you think that people intrinsically want to do the right thing and be good mm. and they may misbehave because they're flawed human beings but you can forgive them if you get to that point maybe dennis is the buddha the next incarnation <laughs> <laughs> He's such an interesting character. He's a very intelligent man. Mm. I interviewed him when Kevin Maguire did his biography. He could have been an actor or a singer. He's got a beautiful singing voice. He sang for me on, in Parliament on the uh, on the terrace. Did he really? He crooned this song. There's a lot of Tory MPs sat there. He's going, the day that Margaret Thatcher died was the best day of my life. And they were all fuming, but they couldn't do much because he's like 82 or something. They could definitely hear him because he's doing it right at them sort of thing. I was thinking he actually does have quite a pretty good voice, doesn't he? I know he did. He used to sing in the residential homes for older people in his patch. 
and he said he did it because he used to sing to his mother when she had dementia. He said she'd come alive through the music. I mean, that's the potency of music, isn't it? We've mm. seen that in lockdown. The complete power of it, which is weird when people only like stuff they think they should like because music is much more primal than that. There's always going to be music that you don't understand why you like it, but you do, which is probably one of the reasons I started writing about music to try and explain to myself how the hell I like this thing in the first place, which is that weird thing when people cancel artists now. I mean, I think you should definitely uh, take them down for what they're saying. If you don't agree with Morrissey, say it endlessly. Yeah. But what happens if he puts out a record you like? Do you have to pretend not to like it? Because he's speaking to you on a much more primal level, often, than the idiot that's singing it. <laughs> I mean, it is really hard when, you know, you see the personal conduct or the behaviours of people who, in many senses, were sometimes heroes. Mm. And you love their music, but it is hard. I mean, Morris is not the only one, is it? No, I mean, that's the other thing, because I'm in the scene and people that held up with Saints. Not all, but I do know a lot of stuff that you wouldn't publish, but you kind of know stuff about people and things. And, you know, they go, well, yeah, I've cancelled that person, so I completely adore this person. You go, yeah, but that person was doing this, this. You know, it's a really odd debate. I think call them out. The music is far less mundane than real life, isn't it? <laughs> but there is a border that you wouldn't cross. I couldn't listen to racist music. If somebody was shouting something that you didn't agree with into your ear, that would definitely turn you off as a piece of music anyway, wouldn't it? You know, that'd be a valid point. But if it was something they'd done in life that you didn't agree with, but you still liked the music, do you have to pretend not to like their music? That's No. Because, I mean, in the punk thing, you know, Sex Pistols is one of the greatest bands of all time, but Sid Vicious... Can't probe him. Did he murder Nancy? We don't know. Plus, John Lydon has ended up being a bit of a confused. Is he pro-Trump? We don't know. But does that spoil the experience of listening to the Sex Pistols album? No, it doesn't, actually. It's just a really fantastic record, which captures the confusion and the thrilling excitement to youth absolutely perfectly. Yeah. And I don't listen to that record thinking, oh, uh, the singer, 40 years later, said a lot of pro-Trump stuff. I don't think of that. The music's such a maelstrom, it just takes me over. It's not rational. It's trying to make something as art is so irrational. I mean, what about painters or classical composers? I mean, they were all right on, were they? You know, it's... Are we expecting too much of these people? Well, I think creators, I mean, real genius, they're very often... You know, they're driven people, aren't they? They're over-indexed in some abilities and under-indexed in others. A bit like politicians, I guess. <laughs> I was politicised by music. Growing up in the 70s and early 80s in the Midlands, Margaret Thatcher, Prime Minister, dramatic times, youth unemployment massive. You know, bands like from the Dead Kennedys at one end through to the specials, they reached out to me. I mean, even Wham Rap, for God's sake. It, all that kind of stuff helped politicise me in a way that led me into politics. Oh, completely. I don't think that works now because people have access to more information and people are more cynical now because they've seen how flawed this is. I mean, all those bands you mentioned, ironically, apart from one, all ended up having massive interceding arguments over royalties <laughs> falling out each other. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it was, yeah, it's true. It was just an example yeah. of the market being in control. There was no splitting up, well, you know, with the road crew as well. It wasn't that socialist, was it? But I'm not <laughs> criticising them for it because a lot of bands get formed when they're young, you know, and, and I know people in those bands. I mean, yeah. Horace Panton, you mentioned before, is a top bloke and so is Terry Hall. These are really good people and it's yeah, complicated it's running a band because it's so chaotic and fast. Yeah. But at the end of the day, was it an example of how to live, I don't know. I mean, it's good to inspire people to try and do public service to make things better. Yeah. Was it actually a distraction for those people who could have made something better and they ended up just playing bass in a band? You know, <laughs> maybe they should have changed the world instead. <laughs> but music changes the world. It changes minds, it changes people, it enriches them. To be able to make good music, to create, is the ultimate accolade. If I could have played guitar or I had any musical ability at all, I wouldn't have been a politician. But you don't have to have musical ability to have joy of 
playing music, you could just get a guitar and learn to play it or any instrument and just play it for yourself. I mean, there's always that thing now where everybody thinks it should be a career because just simply aren't enough people to sustain everybody else in a career in music. But it's also curiously one of the things that we're really good at in this country. God knows why. How do we end up being good at music with truly insular people who can't dance? And we're probably the drivers of pop culture across the whole world, you know. Tell me this, though, John, right? I mean, you're still full of energy. Every time I meet you, you've got ideas, you're brimming with ideas. What does the future hold for you? Having ideas is a curse, isn't it? Because you just... <laughs> Can't stop. You, yeah, they keep coming and then other people run off with them and then you end up with nothing. But I like ideas. I like the buzz of ideas and I like talking to people of ideas and the sparks rush and it's exciting, isn't it? I mean, whether they're musical ideas or cultural ideas or political ideas, any ideas, you know, they are exciting. Getting things out of thin air... So what does the future hold? Well, who knows? I mean, I suppose in practical level, it's just trying to find a way out of this pandemic mess. And then maybe if we get all um, esoteric, this is the point where we go into the age of Aquarius or whatever. Where, But you just kind of know in your heart, you're optimistic, but you're tempered with cynicism. You know that we're very good at pissing on our own doorsteps, aren't we? Would you ever consider elected office at any level? I think your hands are tied, aren't they? I mean, it's tempting, isn't it? Dale's thinking about it, uh, Dale Vince, he's thinking of going for Labour MP, and he'd be good at it. I think he has more power on the outside because he actually gets things done. I know it's very difficult to get things done. People go, right, why don't you go and sort this out? I see people say that, go, well, there's committees, there's a party, the party's where it's going to get elected, you can't say this, you can't do that. And in the end, you can't get very much done, can you? And I think that'd be very frustrating. I just wonder if, uh, is that a flaw in politics or is that actually... To stop it going too crazy, it zigzags in loads of different directions. The checks and balances. Yeah. They always say, we well, get your hands on the lever of power when you're an MP, but then you realise you have to be a minister, and then when you're a minister, you haven't got the levers, and you have to be prime minister. And when you're prime <laughs> minister, you realise you haven't got the lever. No one's actually got their hand on the lever. No. But you can, through determined, focused action as an elected representative, you can change things, right? And... Politics for me, you win and you lose all the time. You have to get used to losing a lot of the time. But when you get a win, that's when you get your buzz. A justice issue, a law change, your constituency getting X, sorted out a constituent problem. You're like a super connector and you bring people together to collectively problem solve. And it is incredibly rewarding until the point where you run out of energy <laughs> and then you have to go. That sounds like a description of my life anyway. Well, that's why I didn't mean it half-heartedly. I mean, you've got all the qualities and experiences and the right approach to actually change people's lives at scale if you wanted to. Look, you'd be a great candidate. I mean, what a backstory. I'd love to write your manifesto. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sure you've got experience of that. <laughs> I think it also needs a future politics. I think two parties are what I've grown up in, and I do lean more towards the left, but I think we need to listen to people we don't agree with we definitely need to embrace green issues, not because they're nice and cosy and it's like sting in the rainforest and it's a nice thing to say. It's actually desperation now. It's worse than the pandemic, what's happening out there. And we need to make those changes really, really fast. And some of them won't be comfortable changes. You know, for a couple of years, it's going to be stuff we go, oh, I'd rather do it like we used to, but we can't anymore because we have no choice. And then people go, what about China? But China's actually making changes. You know, these other countries are, you know. Yeah. Britain could be a market leader, it's a world leader, and I think the Green Industrial Revolution everyone talks about is more important than the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century, which created the city I'm sat in, Manchester. You're Prime Minister, you do have your hands on the levers of power. What would you do on day one? God, it's a big task. I mean, the first thing I'd like to see a levelling up, I'd like to see a far better education system that goes around the whole country so we can embrace the talent that's out there. You know, there's so many kids left on the scrap heap. I would definitely put the Green Agenda right in the middle of it, because we have to. 
and I'll look at those green industries because we will make money out of them. But I don't want to train kids up in council states to be a workforce. I want to train them to be leaders. John, I'm going to end this there on a high. If ever you stand for Parliament or for any elected office, give me a ring. I'm going to campaign for you. I think you're the future. <laughs> I'm definitely the past in that regard. And I'm going to carry on practising the guitar in my living room. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, mate. Good to talk. Well, that was the effervescent John Robb always overflowing with energy like he was the first time I saw him perform at the 100 Club as lead singer of punk band Goldblade. I've known him for getting on for 20 years, mainly to do with his work in the music industry when I was a politician. He makes the industry his business, but it's his life as well. And through his website, Louder Than War, which is a labour of love and has been for many decades, he talks about his brand of music and the community of music lovers, of which he is undoubtedly their leader. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Persons of Interest. If you did, do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear more of my conversations. If you like it a lot, please consider giving us a rating. Thanks for listening. Persons of Interest is an IE Entertainment production. The executive producer is Lucy Pullen. This episode was edited by James at Podmonkey. The music is by Tom Gray. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.